Father, we're grateful for the scriptures. In these times, we're particularly thankful for the message that Jesus gave us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. He told us, he told us in that passage not to worry. He told us in that passage that we're not to be anxious. It's a, it's a masterpiece of a passage. And he keeps hammering home. Your father knows that you need these things. Your father knows that you need these things. So don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That is, that is a key to keeping sanity right now in these times. It's a discipline to not worry about tomorrow. And uh, just as I'm praying, I'm remembering the comments Martin Lloyd-Jones said about the words of Jesus there, and his comments essentially were, we weren't constructed to take on the pressures and the potential problems of the future. If, if someone takes on the potential problems of the next three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, and the problem with doing that is that worry is you never have just a single thought of worry. They multiply. We, we were designed, each day there's enough trouble, and God gives us grace to get through the trouble, and he gives us what we need, whatever it is, he gives us what we need to get through that day. But if then we go out, and it's not that we don't think about the future because we've got to do appropriate planning, but there's a difference between planning and worrying. And when we take on all those potential problems, all the things that might happen, all the things that could happen, all the things that our imagination thinks will happen, It'll crush us. It will absolutely devastate us because we're not equipped to take that on. We can't handle that. Everyone, everything, every object has its limits. Even the big trucks on the interstate, there's stations where they pull them over and they weigh them. They can carry a lot a lot more than a small compact. But even the big trucks have their breaking point. Well, so do we. I would pray in these times that you would help us to follow what Jesus said. Don't worry about tomorrow. Your Father knows that you need these things. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Help us to choose joy 
Help us to choose truth. Help us to choose your word because it calibrates us. It recalibrates us like a chiropractor does when we walk in there. It jolts us back to what you say and what is true. That's our prayer for ourselves in these days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5 tonight, and as we're heading that direction, I've been reminded in recent weeks that it was 1979, 1980, somewhere in that range. I was pastoring, I was a rookie pastor in my first church in what's now known as Silicon Valley, the San Francisco Peninsula. And uh, a group of us from the church went over to hear Francis Schaeffer speak in Oakland, California. And they were premiering one of his, he did a couple of movie series that were cutting edge. And Schaeffer in the film was talking about the breakdown of Western civilization. And I clearly remember Right around the same time I went to hear Schaefer, I was driving up 101 and uh, on KGO, the news radio station, a, a, a news reporter said Stanford University had just announced that they were counseling all Western civilization courses. Now why would I remember that? The reason I remember it is that I had just read a couple of books by Schaefer. And Western civilization, that's just an academic word for Christian civilization. And they're not going to study that anymore, and they're going to study multiculturalism. Now, you don't ever want to say anything against multiculturalism. But here's the problem with multiculturalism. Different cultures have different gods that are different than the god of Christian civilization. And so that is hardly ever mentioned, but it is a fact. Anyway, went over to hear Schaefer, and there was a question and answer period. And at a certain point, someone asked in light of the breakdown of Western civilization, and Schaefer had covered that in the movie, and the Renaissance, and what happened in the Reformation, and then the Enlightenment, and all of this. And anyway, someone said, well, Dr. Schaefer, with this breakdown that's occurring, in your mind, what do you see as the future of America? And Schaefer, who was in his uh, typical, he, he an American pastor who moved to Switzerland to have a ministry after World War II, lived in the Swiss Alps. He was dressed like he was hiking the Swiss Alps. He wore those uh, short little pants, I mean, uh, lederhosen, thank you. I was shopping for those online this morning, actually. Uh, They're hard to find in my size, but nevertheless, and the long socks, and he had what looked like hiking boots. I mean, it looked like he was going out to trek, you know, Yosemite or something. Anyway, 
Schaefer, he, he, so what do you see as the future of America? What's going to happen to America? And he said, well, obviously, this is speculation on my part. But it would seem to me with the trajectory and the way that the country's going, I would foresee that America would wind up in a dictatorship. Uh, either the left or the right, I don't know which, but I would foresee that there would be some kind of major national emergency that would require suspension of certain rights, and people would go along with that for the good of the country, words to that effect. But um, long term, I could see people giving up their rights under a dictatorship as long as they could be promised two things, personal peace and affluence. You give me personal peace and affluence, and I'll give up freedom of speech. Now, now I'm making comments, not Schaefer. I, and I was paraphrasing him, obviously. We're there now. We're there. Daniel 5, as we'll see in a minute, is uh, remarkably relevant to where we are now, right now. And where we are right now is on our minds. We met a week ago, and what has happened, and, and, and hasn't it been this way for quite a while? You just think it can't get any worse, and you think it can't get any crazier, and it does. That's where we are right now. And so what we're thinking about as we come into this Bible study is we're thinking about what's going on in our lives right now. R.C. Sproul once said this, there is more to our lives than now. If there is not, then even the now is meaningless. Now you gotta chew on that for a little bit. There is more to our lives than now. If now is all you've got, or as, as the secularists say, the, we're in a secular, secularist culture, or Sec a secular education system, uh, secular government, everything's secular. What does that mean? The one who is uh, into secularism believes that this is the only world that there is. That's really what it means to be a secular person. What's going on now, this is it. They're, they're scared to death of dying. Carl Sagan, the very famous, very famous, very famous scientist. Johnny Carson had him on all the time. The universe is all there is and all there ever will be. I'm not sure he holds that view now. And that's, I'm not sure he would say that. There's more to our lives than now. If there is not, then even the now is meaningless. The secularist person says, this is the only world. But Jesus said there is another world. You see, this is not the only world, there is another world. 
the entire world, we're going to get some perspective tonight on what's going on right now. The entire world, the entire universe, the entire creation, from beginning to end, including now, is linked together by the one true God who cannot make a mistake. Who cannot make a mistake. R.C. Sproul's ministry, Ligonier Study Center, does a, 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 uh, what they call a state of theology every year, and they put out propositions, and people that are committed believers, and not fringe people, I mean people that talk about their personal relationship with Christ, they believe in inerrancy and authority of the Bible, the Trinity, etc. I mean, these are solid people in their belief system, by testimony, then they'll ask them questions and see how they respond. Um, that state of theology, the first statement that they put out on the current one is this, God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake. There are Christian people that think God has made a mistake. What has happened where we are right now, there, and, and listen, there's plenty of room to be confused. There's plenty of room to, because of Isaiah 55, 8, God says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. He doesn't do things the way we think he should do them. We, we, he's God, we're not. He's infinite, we're not. My ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, my thoughts above your thoughts. Just like you couldn't understand your parents, what they did when you were four or five. It made no sense. You'd get angry, you'd get mad. And then when you're 34 and 35 and had kids, you're doing the exact same thing. But you don't have the capacity. And we won't have the capacity until we get our glorified bodies in heaven. Now we know in part, but then face to face. Um, God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake, is the supposition. 50% of strongly committed Christians believe that. The other half verge from 13% who strongly disagree to 12% who are not sure, and the rest are somewhere in between. Christians strongly affirm that God, and I'm reading from the statement, Christians strongly affirm that God is a perfect being because to deny that God is a perfect being is to deny, is to deny that God is God. An imperfect being, by definition, is not God. The great theologian Archibald Alexander rightly said the very idea of God is that of a being infinitely perfect. God's work is perfect, Deuteronomy 32.4. His way is perfect, 2 Samuel 22.31. His law is perfect, Psalm 19.7. His knowledge is perfect, Job 37.16. For God to make a mistake, there would have to be in him some imperfection in his holiness, goodness, knowledge, or wisdom. But he is perfect in all his attributes because he is his attributes. He cannot, therefore, make mistakes. To suggest otherwise is blasphemous. Where we are right now Right now, in our lives, right now, it's not a mistake. It's all linked together. So a very simple outline tonight. 
as we try to make some sense of where we are right now. First point is this. What is happening now is tied to the past. That'll be Daniel 5. And then we'll wander over into Daniel 11 for the second point. What is happening now is tied to the future. Remember, the entire world from beginning to end, including now, is linked together by the one true God who cannot make a mistake. So let's go to Daniel 5. Daniel 5, we pick up a new king. Up until now, we've read about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. In Daniel 4, we read about Nebuchadnezzar's um, encounter with the sovereign God who is the king of kings and lord of lords. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Babylon was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And he was given a dream. Daniel interpreted the dream. King, this is about you. If you do not honor God, repent and turn to him and humble yourself, God is going to cut you down like he would cut down a tree. A stump would be left. You'll be given the mind of an animal, and you will be in the fields grazing on grass for seven years. And that's what happened, and it's told from his vantage point, Nebuchadnezzar's. And then when his mind is given back to him, his reason is given back to him by the Lord, he, he bows, he repents, he humbles himself, and he gives glory to God, and there was, there was a conversion of this great man. But now he's dead, he's off the scene. So chapter, that's the end of chapter four, now you get to five, and between four and five, there's 40, 50 years. Um, Daniel uh, was probably middle-aged, 40, 45 maybe. Now in Daniel 5, where we meet this new king, Daniel's gonna be pushing 90. So we're jumping some decades. This new king, Belshazzar, is, um, is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So, we're gonna read this, work our way, just read through the text, make some comments, but this is under the first point of the outline. What is happening now, today, is tied to the past. So let's jump in. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. So there's this great banquet hall and the elite are gathered together for this young king. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, and I should say this before we go any further, um, there is a set of circumstances going on, and probably by throwing this banquet, he's trying to show that he is above the circumstances and not concerned about the army that is outside of their wall. It's the army of the Medes and the Persians, and we should know this, Babylon I could have brought some information on Babylon. It, when, 
if you have a Bible dictionary, you can look it up, or even an encyclopedia. Uh, ancient Babylon was a massive city, had two walls. Uh, Euphrates River ran through it. They held their own water system. They were absolutely self-sufficient. They were a fortress. They were impenetrable. They, um, the walls were of such a size uh, they, they were massive. I wouldn't even begin to try and do this from memory, but they were massive, massive. The size of this city was, was, it would be incredible even today. The walls were wide enough that, as I recall, you could have four teams of horses drawing chariots widthwise. Um, they had two of those walls. And the height was remarkable, and they had guard posts every so many yards. So if there was a breach, there were soldiers there immediately. I mean, this was one well-protected city. Now, just two days prior, about 50 miles away, Belshazzar's father, this often happened with kings in this period of time, they would have a younger son, and at some point they would make him co-regent. They would rule together. Well, the father is out fighting the Medes and Persian, and two days prior he was defeated in battle by them. They are now at the wall. But they're thinking, and this king is thinking, we're going to head and party because they can't get in here. Now we'll come back to that. So here's this young king, Verse 2, when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, actually grandfather, that word can mean ancestor, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem. So when the Lord gave the nation of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, states that in the first two verses of Daniel, as a discipline as a punishment. They were to go in for 70 years of captivity because they had refused to listen to the prophets and the words of God for hundreds of years. He, um, he unraveled the temple, Solomon, I mean the great temple, and he took everything, and including the gold and silver vessels so they're drinking out of these vessels which his father, his grandfather, had taken out of the temple which is in Jerusalem so that the king and the nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Now here's the thing about these vessels, about these goblets. They were dedicated to the glory of the one true God. Now watch what he does. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple of the house of God which is in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines, they drank from them. And they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. The goblets that were to be used for the glory of God are being used to honor idols that are demons. Suddenly, immediately, as a result of that act, verse 5, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. 
and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Now here's a young king that's lived a privileged life, uh, has no being, business being in this position, probably has no leadership skill. He's just a young, spoiled member of royalty who all his life has been privileged above the law, has no accountability. He's just going to do what he's going to do. I mean, today he would probably be a governor somewhere in the United States. He's thinking he's above the law. What he does, he just does. It doesn't matter what he says. He doesn't have to follow it. He just does his own deal. He's pretty full of himself. But when this hand appears, and he sees it, and all in the room see it, so there's a massive hand, and the hand starts writing. Then, verse 6, the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack. Oh, yeah. Uh, another translation says his loins went loose. I prefer that one. I mean, suddenly he needed another pair of Depends. You see a hand writing on a wall, and you can see the hand and the fingers, and you can, where there's nothing else, the loins go loose. And his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in all his uh, counselors, conjurers, Chaldeans, diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of, in, uh, of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as a third ruler in the nation. Because there are already two rulers. Then all the king's wise men came in. They could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. The queen, more than likely his grandmother, entered the banquet hall because of the words of the kings and nobles. The queen spoke and said, King, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, grandfather, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father slash grandfather, your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. So uh, Daniel's pushing 90. You got a new king, a young king. And by the way, this young king, he's looking at life, and yeah, there's a threat, but he's above the threat. When you're young, you think that you're going to live for a long time. Uh, I doubt that anyone in here, even if you've got physical issues, I doubt that any of us are thinking, I'm going to die tonight. But this young king was going to die that night, as we'll see in just a moment. So then they bring in Daniel. 
Then Daniel was brought in before the king, verse 13. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who was one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father and king brought from Judah? I've heard about you, that you have a spirit of the gods. Just now the wise men and the conjurers in 15, they can't figure out what was being written. I personally heard about you. Now if you're able, this is 16, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Now watch Daniel's response. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself. I love that. I mean, hey kid, keep, keep that stuff. Yeah, you, you, yeah that's fine. Um, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Now here we go. O King, most high God, the most high God, the most high God. This kid was high. He was king, he was president of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. He's high, God's most high. That's always true. The powerful men, the powerful leaders, they're high, God is the most high. He runs them, he owns them, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Proverbs 21.1. They have a will. They're free moral agents. But they cannot thwart the plan of God. In fact, God can, can incline their hearts to do what he would require of them to do. That's a discussion for another time, but God has that power and declares it throughout Scripture. He says, keep your gifts for yourself, verse 18. O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the people's nation and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. That's called um, tyranny. But that's the power that was given to this king. Now, I'm going to keep my finger there. And uh, I'm, going to go to, I'm going to go to another document that is not inspired, but it's a document that has been held in the highest regard of this country, which is the Constitution of the United States. And I'm going to go to the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. We're all familiar with this First Amendment. What has happened to it in the last week? It's been totally ignored.
and it will continue to be ignored. This is where we are right now. We have not been here before. There have been attacks on it for quite a while and court decisions, and they've been chipping away at it for as, for as long as I can remember. But there has been a invasion of tyranny in the past week that is designed to shut this down. You know it, and I know it. Now, we'll come back to this. But Nebuchadnezzar had that kind of power. But he recounts to this young man, verse 20, but when his heart, Nebuchadnezzar's, was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beast and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized, and here comes the statement again that we read three times in the previous chapter. And if you were here last week, you'll recognize it. Same statement, it's repeated. He would be drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized, here you go, that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. God is absolutely sovereign. God is perfect. God makes no mistakes. He has a plan for the ages. It is absolutely perfect because he is perfect. It cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. It's more exact than an atomic clock. And right now, where we are in our lives, we're in that plan, and we were appointed to be alive during this time for God's glory and his purposes, and he's got something in mind for each of us and our kids and our grandkids. Although we're very, very concerned about them. Of course we are. So he recounts what happened to Belshazzar's grandfather. And then he says in 22, yet you, his son, grandson, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of this house before you, you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him and this inscription was written out. So here's what the hand wrote on the wall. This is the inscription, Daniel says, that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel uparsin, this is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put it into it. It's over. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanted. You've been found deficient. Perez, 
Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders. They clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. That's what you call the end of an empire. And they thought they were insurmountable. What happened was that the Seabees, uh, if you will, of the army of the Medes and Persian figured out a way as that on one side of that wall as that river was flowing through, they found a way to, um, to dig down and redirect that river and dry it out enough to get their men in there in that passageway. And they took it over and killed that king that night. And that was the end of the Babylonian Empire. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Darius the Mede is a reference to Cyrus the great. Darius the Mede is a, is a title applied to different kings uh, in the scripture at different times. But it's clearly, we know this, it's a reference to Cyrus. By the way, so this also, th this also represents the end of the 70-year captivity. So at the beginning of Daniel, they go in, God hands the people of Judah to Nebuchadnezzar, and by the way, guys, I'm going to give you a quiz at the end. So I, I, did, I didn't want to drop it on you. I just wanted to let you know it's coming. This is a big deal because Cyrus the Great, Darius the Mede comes in. You know what that means? The 70 years is over, and it was over. Now, this young guy probably wasn't going to let him go, just as Pharaoh wasn't going to let him go because they were too important to the nation and to the country and to the economic engine and to the advancement. It doesn't say that, but it makes sense. Why would he let him go? Um, he didn't care anything about what God said. He wasn't going to obey the living God. So at the end of the 70 years, all of this occurs... And what's interesting about Cyrus the Great, if you go over to Isaiah 44 and 45, God speaks to him, and God says, he's a pagan king, and he says, you're my anointed, I have chosen you, and you are going to release my people from Babylon, you're my anointed, even though you don't know me, I'm going to use you, you're going to give, I'm going to give you a heart of favor on my people, and you are going to send them back enable them to go back, you're going to finance their return even though you don't know me. And that's exactly what he did. By the way, Isaiah 44 and 45 were written 150 years before Cyrus did it. 150 years. And here he's 62 years old. You see, what was going on that night which was back then, it was now, was linked to the past. Just as we're linked to the past. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. 
He's in complete control. Kingdoms come to an end. The rise and fall of great nations. This was the end of the Babylonian Empire. It was the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire. And therefore, the Jews were taken back to Jerusalem. It was, it was a handoff. It was a handover by Almighty God. Now, it's important that we understand that uh, what's happening right now is tied to the past. Because what that does is it gives us, um, it gives us a, a hope that the God who was in control of all events in the past is the God who is in control of all events in the present and is the God who is involved and in control of all events in the future. You have biblical prophecy that tells us what's going to happen in the future. Next week we'll be in Daniel 6. Daniel's being thrown into the lion's den. So a lot's happened this week, and it's happened very quickly, and it's happened very suddenly. Um, Dennis Prager is a brilliant commentator, conservative Jew who knows the Old Testament scriptures. Um, Mark Levin is another conservative Jew who knows the Old Testament scriptures. Ben Shapiro is another Old Testament Jew who knows the Old Testament scriptures. He had John MacArthur on his podcast. He's really taken with John MacArthur. Which, they're both in L.A., although Shapiro's headed for Nashville. Um, but he made the statement that he had great respect for MacArthur because MacArthur knew the Old Testament so well. And many pastors don't know the Old Testament. But uh, rightfully so, MacArthur believes, as we do, that the new is linked to the old. It's all the same Lord, and it's all pointing to Jesus. So I often pray for Shapiro that he will come to know that Jesus is the Messiah. Not every day, but often. Prager, you can look this article up. It, I think it just came out today. Uh, titled is The Left Uses Capital Invasion as Nazis Use the Reichstag Fire. I won't read all of it. It's worth reading. On February 27, 1933, exactly one month after the Nazis came to power, the German parliament building, the Reichstag, was set ablaze. The Nazis blamed the fire on their arch enemy, the communist, and used the fire to essentially extinguish the Communist Party and its ability to punish not to publish, speak, or otherwise spread its message. Under the Reichstag fire as an excuse, using it as an excuse, the Nazis passed the Enabling Act, a law that gave the Nazi Chancellor Adolf Hitler the power to pass laws by decree without the Reichstag. On January 6, 2021. And then he talks about what happened. And then the rest of this five-page article is that how this is being used in the same way that was used. And uh, it resonates with me. It's just fact after fact. Can, can you believe 
what's happened in terms of the First Amendment since last week. And by the way, do you think they're going to stop tomorrow? Do you think they're going to stop next week? I mean, this week has been stunning. I was stunned last week before this happened. I was stunned the week before, but I keep getting stunned. And you keep getting stunned. And we're going to keep getting stunned because what has happened from a biblical perspective, it certainly seems to me that we have been handed over, that we've been given over. Now, if that's the case, what do we do about it? Going back to Francis Schaeffer, he did a lot of books. He had a remarkable insight into the culture. One of his books was called How Then Should We How Now How Then Shall We Now Live? How Then Shall We Now Live? Interesting title. How Then Shall We Now Live? Uh, that's a question we're asking ourselves. You may not be using that exact sentence structure, but you're asking. This week, in light of what's happening and how it's come in so quickly and so fast, how then shall we now live? Because it's all different. It's not going to be the way it was. We're in a new era. We're in a new season. That we didn't want. But, but it's here. Secondly, what is happening now is tied to the future. So in the second part of Daniel, Daniel's talking about the last days and the, the revelation that is given to him by the angelic being, it, it, it is so startling if you look at 7.15. After what's revealed to him, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. All the way through as these visions are revealed to him, it takes a physical toll on him. If you look at 728, at this point the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale. I kept the matter to myself. Um, but I was told in, verse, in 8.17, Son of man, understand the vision pertains to the time of the end. While he was still talking with me, the angel, I sank into a deep sleep. Uh, that, what, what's going to happen at the end is so alarming to him. If you look at 8.27, then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for many days. It was so much for him to bear. It was so much even though he knew it wasn't for his time, this revelation was, was absolutely staggering. And then you go to 921. Uh, while I was st still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Uh, what, what was coming just uh, uh, almost undid him physically. What he saw in essence, and... When you get to Daniel 11, this takes some careful study, but there is a reference to what was going to happen to the Jews some hundreds of years later, a hundred years before Christ. 
there would be a ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes, and he is discussed in uh, 1129 uh, down through about verse 35. He desecrated the temple of the Jews on December 15th, 167 B.C. Horrible things happened. But then he says this, and, and I want to point something out here. One of the things that's interesting and fascinating, if you study biblical prophecy, and I was talking to a friend of mine last week, and he said, you know, I remember growing up in church, and we would have these classes on prophecy, even as a young person. And I can remember being told time and time again, you cannot find America in biblical prophecy. Now, I remember the same thing growing up. You can't find America in, Amer in biblical prophecy. Why can't you find America in biblical prophecy? Because we're not there. And we're the big boys on the block. Now, maybe that uh, is starting to add up a little bit. In, in 11, he talks about the Antichrist. And, and here is how we have to think about where we are right now in regard to the future. This Antichrist is going to be a one-world ruler who's going to have absolute power. There's going to be a one-world system. There's going to be a mark that if you don't take it, you can't buy or sell. Uh, in verse 35, he transitions from Antiochus Epiphanes to the Antichrist, he says, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. In other words, there's something else beyond Antiochus Epiphanes. And then he says, then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things about the god of gods and he will prosper uh, until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. That's interesting. I would take that that he's a homosexual. Nor will he show regard for any other god. He will magnify himself above them all. He's going to be a one-world ruler, and this is where the world is heading. You've heard of globalism? Globalism is a setup for the Antichrist. It all makes sense. All democracies will be extinguished and exterminated. They will not exist. They will not be there. So we should not be too surprised to see our democracy being unraveled. Because it's the way, it's what God has ordained and planned for the future. Now, are all the details filled in? No. Jesus could come back tonight. Let's take a vote. <laughs> the eyes have it. Yeah, we're all good with that. He's going to come back, and he's going to capture us, and he's going to take us out. Uh, that could happen at any time. Until that time, how then shall we now live, is the question. So today, in Don Carson's devotional, 
there is a Bible reading calendar, and uh, if you go to the Gospel Coalition, you can find the, um, is it the Bible reading plan, uh, read the Bible, a daily devotional Bible commentary. It's based on uh, reading four chapters a day. This was devised 300 years ago by Robert Murray McChain in Scotland. I've read through it numerous times with this plan. And there are always four passages. So if you start on January 1, it's Genesis 1, uh, Ezra 1, Matthew 1, uh, Acts 1. So you're reading in four different places at one time. So this morning, I get my email. Uh, here's today's reading. And um, Carson says it's worth comparing two passages that we'll focus on today. There were four, but we're going to focus on two, which is Nehemiah 2 and then Acts 12. So in Nehemiah 2, you've got Nehemiah, obviously. And then in Acts 12, you've got Peter being arrested and being thrown in prison and thinking he's going to be killed. Um, Carson says this. The same God is behind both situations, of course. In both situations, a lone servant of God faces the challenge of building up and strengthening God's people in the teeth of opposition from some pretty hostile customers. Both men are in danger, in part for political reasons, though Peter's danger is the more immediate. Both are unflinching in their loyalty to the living God and to the mission in which each is called. So two different sections of Scripture at two different times, but two men that are facing hostilities, uh, one much more so than the other, but they're both in precarious situations and they need God's help dramatically in their lives. Um, in Nehemiah's case, God just gives him wisdom to deal with the situation day by day, and as things come up, there are no miracles. But in Peter's situation, there are miracles He's arrested, has been in prison, awaiting execution. James has already been killed. Peter has no reason to think he will escape the sword. In a strange apparition that he mistakes for a dream, Peter is rescued by an angel. The chains fall off. The doors open. The gates open of their own accord. Finding himself outside the prison wall, Peter comes to his senses, presents himself at the home of John Mark's mother, where people have gathered to pray for him. And if you remember, he knocks on the door, and the girl said, who is it? He says, it's Peter. They're there praying for Peter's release. And she says, hey, Peter's here. Oh, it's not Peter. What do you mean it's Peter? That's nuts. What have they been doing for the last two hours? Praying for Peter's release. Peter's at the door. They don't believe it. It's a miracle. It's the providence of God. In Peter's case... To escape death is a triumph, and the church and the faith of the church was strengthened because of the angelic antivity that was miraculous. And then he says this, last paragraph. The lessons of these radically different experiences is one that we must learn again and again. God's servants do not have the same gifts, the same tasks, the same success, or the same degree of divine intervention. It's partly a matter of gifts and calling. It's partly a matter of where we fit into God's unfolding redemptive purposes. Has he placed us in times of declension, for example, or of revival, of persecution, or of major advance? Final sentence. Let God be God, and let all his servants be faithful. 
So how then shall we now live that things have shifted and things have changed dramatically? What shall we do? And, and all that's happened this past year of 2020 has thrown everyone into some kind of uh, turmoil, some kind of transition. It might be your business, it might be financial, it might be your health, it could be, um, uh, do, I, I've been doing this for X amount of years, but this is completely dried up. Now, Lord, what do I do next and how do I go about this? And I don't have any contacts. I, uh, you're completely dependent on him. I got an email from a guy a couple of nights ago, interesting guy. About 10, 12 years ago, he came to the noon study and then he would come here. He was a new believer and uh, he didn't like what I was teaching about this sovereignty of God stuff. In fact, he got, real, he, got, he got pretty upset and quit coming for a while, but he kept reading his Bible and then he came back. Um, he was in commercial real estate for years. Now he has an orphanage in Haiti. That's what he does. Um, <laughs> he asked God to use him, and God said, okay. And he married a gal who had an orphanage, and suddenly he finds himself down there. And, uh, and they're there for a while, and he'll put, dig well and give them clean water and preach the gospel during the day in the town square. He said, hey, Steve, greetings, praying for you as semester starts. We returned from Haiti a month ago and have been in South Texas social distancing with the cows and horses and thinning out the deer population. He's a funny guy. His wife has a family ranch and they're hanging out down there. Things in Haiti are still really bad. Currency devaluation, inflation, riots, kidnappings, robberies are way up. Are way up. But see, that's the norm. He's told me about... Uh, being pulled out of his car, he and his wife, with guys holding automatic rifles. Didn't know if they'd survive. Pretty common. Uh, elections in, later in the year, massive instability, feds have dispatched us on another round of COVID response. What's that about? So here's how this guy makes it. He was in commercial real estate for years, very successful, that, you know, comes into the Lord, had his ups, had his down. Now he, here he is in his 60s, and uh, they have this ministry in Haiti, and they have some support but what happens is when things get real bad in Haiti, they come back. Well, his wife has had a connection with the federal government, with FEMA, and she got him in. And what they do when there's a crisis, they have this high-level position they're brought into, and they take care of certain crises and all that. They may do it three, four, five, six, seven, eight months. And what that does is that pay helps finance the ministry in Haiti. So they go back and forth between Haiti. Just like you do. See, that's not your life, but it's their life. Nehemiah's life was different than Peter's life. My life is different than your life. And you know what we're all saying? We're saying with this change, how then shall we now live? I've already gone over, but I'm going to just read from Psalm 37. Because Psalm 37 is just a great psalm for right now. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious towards wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord. So we're asking the question, so how shall we then, how shall we now live? Now, how shall we live? 
Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. This, this Hebrew term is very interesting. It has the idea of cultivating faithfulness. It has the idea of feeding securely on his faithfulness. Uh, we waver in our faithfulness. He is always faithful. His faithfulness reaches to the skies. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. So I was talking with a guy last week, solid believer, had an appointment with him. I said, how are you doing? He said, you know what I, he said, this is, this whole thing, this is, this is nuts. He said, but you know what? I've chosen to have joy today. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to be thankful. Look, look at what God's done. Look at what, what, how he's blessed me. Look at, he said, I'm, I'm focusing on that. He's got the rest. I'm not going to let this ruin me today. I'm not going to get sick with worry. And I like that. Verse 7. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Don't fret. It only leads to evil doing. Evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they'll inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. For the humble will inherit the land. He will delight themselves in abundant, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his, his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart. And their bows will be broken. There's a lot more good stuff in there. But we're out of time. Hey guys, on the way home, go get a double-double cheeseburger <laughs> and a milkshake. Down there at In-N-Out. It'll just clog you up for a I don't know, 12 hours, you'll be all right. <laughs> but you know what? The Lord is good. And we are blessed men to know him. And to know his son. And to have forgiveness of our sins. And he's got us. He's got us. I quoted this last week. I'll quote it as I close. Psalm 31, somewhere. As for me, I say that you are my God. I trust in you, O Lord. My times are in your hand. So, Father, thank you for your word, the power of your word. Where we are right now, it's just one day in the eternal plan. And you're working the plan. It includes us. You got a plan for our kids. And we, we have, many of us, we have children who are away from you. We ask that by your spirit you would pull them in. And it might be the hardship that's coming that will draw them to you because they have nowhere else to go. We would pray for the grandchildren. We pray for their futures. 
You have your hand upon them, and we pray for their salvation, that you would bring them to your Son, regenerate them by the power of the Holy Spirit, give them eternal life, and use them in their generation. And until you return, we trust you with our lives and our provision and our needs and our direction and our path and that you'll give us the wisdom to follow you. We cast our burdens upon you. The weight of our burdens, we cast them on you tonight. In Jesus' name. And we do that because you care for us. In his name we pray. Amen.